Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So I'll go first. Um, this is um, a little strange for us because it's Saturday morning and we usually record on Friday um, evening or night, but it's um, it's just been an interesting week, a different week, and that ties into what um, I'm astonished about because um, the, um, the the woman who is the ministry coordinator at our church, Rachel Kong, has been um, away this week on vacation, and so um, it's been an interesting week just um, doing um, things that she normally does for the church or finding other people who will do them, and that just um, has made me once again aware of how just incredibly astonished and grateful I am for her, for her period, um, and for her presence and friendship in my life and her, um, just God bringing her to the Grove to be part of the ministry. And, um, I mean, when our church went through transformation, um, one of the things that we had to do at, at really the hardest point was just right size our, our budget. Um, and, and that meant that, you know, two thirds of the congregation had left and you know, the church could not afford really a pastor, much less someone to do kind of the administrative stuff that um, mo many pastors are, are fortunate to not have to do themselves. So um, there's just a certain amount of administrative ministry that's essential in running a church. So if you have a building, then not just, you know, there are usually people in the congregation who will help with the actual um, maintenance stuff. And we have always had a really incredible man, um, Thomas Tarrant, who is our sexton, who, who cares for the building in amazing ways for us. Um, but there's just logistics of like getting inspections done and getting insurance papers filed and, you know, dealing with correspondence and paying bills and then, um, and, and preparing, you know, bulletins and just doing, doing things that are absolutely essential. And often churches um, and pastors, you know, you have someone who's doing that work. And so it becomes invisible. Um, like you just don't see how much work it is because you have someone who does it faithfully and creatively. And, and, and I'm very aware of how much work it is because as part of our transformation process, we, we could no longer afford anyone else to do it. And so people in the church really generously stepped up and took that work on, which is not fun work. It's not like me and Jesus riding off into the sunset work that gives you like a spiritual high. It's just service work that needs to be done. Um, and so for, for, I don't know, like five or six years, um, that work was not necessarily mine directly, but it was my responsibility every week to figure out how it was going to get done. Um, and so I just understand um, just what a, what a burden it is and what a privilege it is to not have to worry about that. And then when we finally got to the point where we could um, afford to bring someone in on a part-time basis, um, we had this incredible gift to be able to say like, well, what does the church need now 
um, that, that, you know, who we are now and how the world is working now. And so we, we really um, spent some time thinking and dreaming, not necessarily about what someone who had been in that position in the past had done, but what, what kind of um, ministry and administration did we need in this season? And so um, we came up, like, it made me think of like this, the thing in Mary Poppins when the kids make their list of their dream nanny, right? Like there's what the dad says the nanny has to be. And then the kids make this totally ridiculous list of just like what they, what their wildest dreams are. And I feel like we did that. We made that list and I'm like, oh gosh. And what I really knew was, you know, right now so much, and I think this is helpful for any, like whatever, to, to the extent that there's anybody in a church or pastor far away um, listening to this, I think what we need as pastors more than anything is someone who can help us in the digital world. Um, because right now, so much of how we can connect to people who aren't already part of our communities and honestly, how we can really help people in our congregations, like integrate their church life with the rest of their life is just to do things, taking advantage of, um, this technological ways to, to connect. And so, you know, we wrote this job description saying like, we really need someone who can really design a website and upkeep a website and, you know, help not just answer the phones for whatever telemarketers are calling, but, you know, create internet interfaces to help coordinate ministry. Like, can someone partner with me in helping, um, see who's out there in the congregation and connect them to meaningful opportunities to serve within the church. And um, can someone help, you know, write and um, create images that when we send out our e-newsletter, it's, it's just um, beautiful and evocative. And, you know, so just made this wish list of like, here's my dream of who, who I want. And, and the big thing was, you know, somebody who would see, see the growth, like see what particular mission and ministry God had for the Grove and someone who would see it and like really believe in it, like really want to be a part of it and be excited about it and carry care on a level beyond just this is my J-O-B and I want to get it done. So, and so um, the crazy thing is that um, Rachel, you know, was connected to the job description and, and chose to apply. And she's just this amazing, talented um, artist and writer and like um, has this beautiful, powerful, authentic faith in Jesus and, and loves the Grove and celebrates what it is. And, um, and then it's just so interesting because she's been at the church for like two years. Um, and, and now that we are recording our services, and and premiering them online so it's all digital and i've just been thinking for the past couple weeks oh my goodness i cannot imagine where we would be if rachel had not already been in place because she has the skills to take all these different pieces of video and stitch them together into one unified piece uh, and like you know, ads, you know, graphics and music and it's like, and it's just incredible. And I, and, and even when we asked for someone who knew the digital world and, and cared about making things, not just functional, but have a certain aesthetic, like, I mean, we just had no idea how much we would need that two years later. And I'm, I'm so astonished at just um, how 
how, what a gift it is to work with her and what an affirmation it is that she would come in and see what we were doing and say, this matters to me and I want to be a part of it. And also just astonished at the providence of God for, for having her um, already, already be here. And this season is hard in, in so many ways and I get overwhelmed and it's just really, and her absence this week, I'm always grateful for her, but her absence this week has really just helped me realize I mean, how wonderful it is to miss her and how wonderful it is to, to see, oh my gosh, every week these things get done and they're absolutely essential and, and they get done with beauty. And um, anyway, so I'm, I'm astonished about that and grateful about that and just really celebrating it this week. So that's oh, mine. That's fantastic. I remember really um, serving as an intern in Louisville, Kentucky. Shout out to Shawnee Presbyterian Church. Um, so a small congregation. And I remember, you know, feeling like you had to do everything from setting up chairs to cleaning up afterwards to preparing whatever program. I mean, you, you just do it because that's the nature of really, really yeah. small congregations. And I remember the first time I had a secretary, it was just mind blowing. It's like, Absolutely. Oh, I, I don't, I don't have to type the bulletin. I don't have to do, I Wow. Yeah, it really is a gift. And for um, pastors who have never experienced that, that shift from having to do it to um, having someone in-house who not only does it, but does it well, um, mm -hmm. it's just a real gift. And I think right now, like, what is, what is just true is that we are in the church undergoing, and it's been accelerated by coronavirus, but we are undergoing this huge um, sea change. And in, in for obviously thousands of years, we have had the, we've had, um, you know, face-to-face -face and paper. Those have been the ways that 99% of our churches yes. have done ministry, right? Yes. Because 99% of our churches have not had to deal with radio or television. Like That's the right. way that you could do ministry was in person, and through paper. Mm -hmm. And and so over the past whatever couple of years since the internet came around, churches have sort of said, okay, and I get it because church life is hard enough, but they've said like, okay, we, we need to have a website. You know, we, we maybe want to think about a shift from a paper newsletter to an email newsletter, whatever. Like we're slowly integrating those technologies in, but but I mean, kind of like a um, nice to have, or even just resent, like I resent that I have to do this. And and then coronavirus happens and all of a sudden, like the digital platform is all that you have, right? And I, a lot of um, what, what, is, what is the gift of that is that if we care about evangelism, if we care about helping people who don't know Jesus come to know Jesus, then the digital platform is where people explore. It's where people take their first steps of safety to see what who is this community saying that Jesus is? And, and would I be safe there here? Would I be welcome here? Like before everybody, before anybody shows up in real life, they're going to explore what your church is doing digitally. And, and that just is what it is. Um, and I think right now it's hard because we don't know how to do any of this. And so a, a lot of times just the default and being overwhelmed is to say like, well, we're just not going to. If people want to be part of our community, they're just going to have to come in person or our members are just going to have to invite people. And I mean, I just think the thing is a lot of times it gets left to pastors since no one else feels competent to do it and pastors know it needs to be done. Then pastors who don't have any training for it either, like 
and you're a perfect example of this. Like you just go in and figure it out because it's like, and like it, it's the equivalent of if you show up for a church event and no one has set up the chairs, you don't go, I shouldn't do this as the pastor. You just go, oh, the chairs need to be set up. And I think that for a long time, pastors have just known like, oh, the digital presence needs to be set up. And so it's going to be hard. It's going to take a lot of time. I'm not really equipped for it, but I'm going to do it because it needs to be done. And I do think that as churches look into what kinds of staff members they have or support, it's, it's really important to say, not that you need to get rid of someone who doesn't have those skills because you don't, but if there's someone in who just, who your church is paying to help um, assist the pastor who's just saying like, no, I'm not going to do that. I've never had to do it before. It's not part of my job to say like, it's not fair to say, well, the pastor has to stumble through and figure it out and be frustrated and learn. But, but the people who support the ministry, others don't have to do that. Like, it's not fair. So I don't think, I mean, 99% of what Rachel does at the Grove is not something that she knew how to do before she started coming to the Grove. She just is committed to the ministry and willing to figure it out. And of course we have right expectations that like, if we're asking her to set up a website, it's going to take a while because she's figuring it out and that's okay. And I just think to, to, for churches to say, Hey, this is what we have to do. And we don't need to go looking for someone who already knows how to do everything, but we also need to have right, right expectations of our staff members to say, if you're willing to learn and fumble and stumble and gain, gain these skills, we will absolutely support you. But if, if you just fold your hands and say the equivalent of, no, I'm not setting up chairs, that's not in my job description, then I think that leaders in the church have to have the pastors back and say, it's not fair. Here's a need. And it's not that it's not the pastor's job. It is that it's not only the pastor's job, right? And so I just think that that's really so important because you're right. Like when you have someone who will come beside you and just help carry the burden of these absolutely essential things that you don't know how to do. And yet you have to figure them out when someone comes in and helps you carry that. It is just so life-giving for you as the pastor, but for the whole congregation. So, um, I'm just so grateful for her <laughs> and, um, so happy that she comes home on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> well, what you're talking about connects with what is astonishing me this week. Um, earlier this week, that is Thursday night, um, some members of Dorita Church gave me a real gift. And I don't know if they realize the gift that they gave me. On Thursday nights, we meet online on uh, the Zoom platform to uh, play games. It's, it's our Thursday night church game night. And I host and I have this small, um, I don't have it on my desk now, but it's a, it's a little, it's a, it's a broadcaster uh, piece of equipment. And so I can play music and sound effects like applause and that sort of thing through it. And I hook up a microphone. And so I, I'm the host. And the first week um, I was Steve Harvey. I had a little monitor behind me with uh, uh, some like family feud and uh, name of our church. And so I, uh, we had a good time uh, playing those games online. I divide people on the screen into teams. And uh, next week we did Bible trivia. And, and so we've been doing this for a number of weeks now. And uh, this past Thursday, uh, several folks, many folks who normally show up for game night, they just had other pressing things uh, that they had to do, really important family 
uh, situations that they had to take care of. And uh, so we only had a, a few folks show up. And uh, and so I, I just asked the people online, I said, well, do you want to try to press forward into playing a game or, or you just want to chat? And someone said, let's just chat tonight. And so um, we did. And we started talking about our online ministry. And, um, you know, when uh, COVID hit, uh, we didn't, <laughs> we, we didn't do online giving. Um, uh, we didn't uh, put up anything on YouTube. I, personally, I didn't have a Facebook account, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, I started setting those things up and then started creating these worship videos, getting, you know, music from our worship leader and stitching things together. And, you know, been doing this for months and it's just hard to know the impact. I mean, I can go into the YouTube yep. analytics and I mean, we've gotten, um, let's see, three, 3.6 thousand views over the past few months, which is really amazing for a church that worships 50 people. Um, uh, but we're having this conversation about, you know, how, how is this going and is anybody watching? And, and so they were asking me about the numbers. And so I was sharing with them, you know, things from YouTube analytics and, you know, our congregation is an older one. Mm -hmm. uh, as a matter of fact, at 49, I'm probably the third youngest person in the congregation. But the gift these folks gave me, they said, look, we watch every week and we want you to know that not only do we watch but we send videos to family members across the country and we just want you to know that we think you're doing a good job and that was so life-giving um mm -hmm. to me um and i i did not realize i was in a place in which i i needed to hear that um mm -hmm. and th there was something because part of my motivation for doing the videos the way I, I do them, uh, for investing the time that I invest, is because I, early on, I thought, I don't want the members of the church to see our videos online and be embarrassed. And, and that there, there may be, there probably is a lot of ego stuff in there as well, but I, I, I thought, you know, with, with the, um, the technology that we have, we should be able to produce something yeah. that makes people um, that is engaging, that you're, you're not distracted by the video or audio. And so the content, mm -hmm. it just paves the way for the content. Not that you're trying to impress people with the production, but the production doesn't get in the way of the content. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah. I, I personally, um, <laughs> not having been a YouTuber before uh, quarantine, I'm I'm reflecting on what we've been doing and thinking, okay, not bad. But yeah. to hear members of the congregation who are 65 plus, uh, 70 plus yeah. uh, say, hey, this is good. Uh, that was just really life-giving to me. And so I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm astonished by how, um, energizing uh that was yeah. yeah well i mean i think it's interesting that you say that because just that idea of like like how the production um like it matters i mean it, mm -hmm. and and certainly because it, it just makes me remember that one of my pentecostal ex-boyfriends which would be a great <laughs> title 
That's like just, an I, know, I was thinking that, that's a great title for, for something. My, my Pentecostal ex-boyfriends. Anyway, one of my Pentecostal ex-boyfriends introduced me. Did you know Carmen? Call, call Taylor Swift. No. <laughs> my Pentecostal. Yes, no. Carmen, um, the singer, you, the singer. Yes, the correct, singer. Right. So he introduced me to Carmen. And, and okay, so at the time, I was a music major. So I was going mm -hmm. through this phase that I had really sort of wrestled with this ideology of like when you go to a conservatory there's just this real hierarchy of like real music and fake and so pop music in general basically anything popular if you go in a conservatory people inside the conservatory will be like that's crap like it's crap like listen to that <laughs> vocal fry like listen how nasal that is like i mean like just every you know every popular contemporary singer they will think is crap and um the vocal people and then, um, but particularly Carmen, like my memory of the dude was like, I mean, it's, it, it was all um, like versions of like very standard, predictable pop tunes or like, um, so there was nothing, I mean, there was nothing new or innovative. I mean, it was really like, um, like here's a version of a 50s style sounding song and now I'm putting Jesus lyrics to it. And I remember my, Pentecostal ex-boyfriend like like be introducing me to Carmen and being like so excited about Carmen because of the evangelism potential of Carmen and they're like isn't this great and I'm like well honestly I mean musically like no like it's really <laughs> cheesy and unoriginal and like I don't I mean like I think it's kind of gross to put all these like really powerful beautiful sacred ideas to like generic like not even original pop, like no, and he and I remember my Pentecostal boyfriend being like, "Well, the music doesn't matter. The music doesn't matter because wow. it's just about getting the words and ideas out there. So who, who cares about the music? It's just the words or ideas." And and me and and at that point in my life, really feeling like you know I was the apprentice Christian. So like, who am I to to have a different sub opinion from someone who is? A Pentecostal Christian. I mean, like this dude speaks in tongues. Like this dude grew up in the church, so he's the expert, and I'm the like person on the edge and maybe getting in. But I remember just being like, "But I mean, the music does matter because shouldn't the songs about Jesus be like the very best songs ever? Like, I mean, if only the words matter, then why put them to music, right? Like, and so I just think, I mean, it's finding that balance between saying like the production doesn't have to be great in the sense that you feel like, well, if I don't have a professional studio why even bother right it's not that but it, but it needs you don't like i wouldn't make a steak dinner and then dig around in the garbage and find an old hamburger container and plop mm. the steak in it and give it mm. to you right like i would say i want to put i want to show you the value of this gift i'm giving you mm. by the way i'm presenting it to you you're preaching so now think, yeah, I mean, so I think like everything that we do, like the bulletin, the newsletter, yeah. the thing, like it can be growing. I mean, it can have, we can try something and fail. It can have mistakes. It doesn't have to be perfect. But people, I want people to see how deeply we care and how beautiful we know Jesus to be. And so I don't just want it to look like we're like, oh, I just grabbed a generic thing off the internet and and change the names and threw it out there and who cares because it has the bible verses on it like we create something beautiful and authentic and real and and unique as as our way of this particular group of people and who we know Jesus to be so anyway i i i think that that's just really really important um 
to um, to wrestle with all of that. So, yes. So what are you thinking about? Well, this is where the podcast is going to take a very, very hard right turn. Um, You're thinking about what everyone is thinking about in the country well, right now. Sadly, not everyone, but yes. Huh? And I, I think as we were just sort of chatting for a minute before we started recording, I mean, we knew what we really wanted to talk about, but we said we really are committed to the practice of astonishment, to the practice of noticing um, where God is and naming the goodness of God and naming places of wholeness and health and love and beauty. And that's really important and more important than ever um, in the context of a time where there is just so much um, tragedy and, and so, so yes. So why don't, why don't you go first? What are, like, let's talk about what's going on, what we're well, really about. Yeah, it's, it's, um, the shooting of Jacob Blake, um, 29 year old black father in what Kenosha, Wisconsin shot, not once, not twice, not three times or four times, but seven times in the back by police, um, by a police officer. And um, at first, you know, when I first heard the story, I have to admit, um, I just, I just didn't want to hear it. I just, I mean, not, not that you ever want to hear it, but I couldn't hear it. I could not listen to it, turned off the television um, because I was like, well, here we go again. Um, so, and again, you know, there's my, my own trauma, my own stuff that I'm wrestling with. Um, and although this sense of, and, and also a sense of, um, not hopelessness. I, I'm I'm never hopeless. Uh, that that's a pretty rare thing for me. But uh, but a sense of um, it felt like some progress was being made, and um, now I'm questioning. I'm feeling once again disoriented. Right, because I'm asking, what what is this thing we are in right now? Right, so in March and April, I could name it. We are in quarantine, right? And now, I, I don't know what this time is, this season is, but um, this, this shooting is particularly disturbing to me. Um, and I, I guess because, you know, at the same time, you have the um, RNC, uh, the Republican National Convention here in Charlotte. And, um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time on YouTube and <laughs> I'm seeing Republican commercials on YouTube referring to the protests that have resulted um, in Wisconsin as riots. And now they're, that these commercials use racist dog whistle language about law and order, right? Translation, if you elect, re-elect Donald Trump, we will keep you safe from black people. 
Um, and if you elect Joe Biden, you will not be safe because he kind of likes black people and he might give them too much power. Um, and so I, I'm just, uh, I'm just disturbed. No, I, that is way too light. <laughs> I am yeah, I angry. I'm sad. I'm frustrated. I am. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, I just think that what is happening right now is there's this, there is this tragic act of violence, which I think that white people need to understand that black people understand that what happened to Jacob Blake was a tragic act of violence that is not that comes from the system of policing we have in this country, but is not, I mean, black people aren't stupid. They know that every time a police officer encounters a black person, they don't end up shot seven times in the black, back, right? Like everyone understands that, but I don't think that white people understand that a huge part of the trauma and violence that black people experience every time something like this happens, it's not just the act itself, it's then how white people primarily talk about what happened. Because what white people say every time is like, well, what did he do what wrong? Did he do? Why did he turn away? He yeah. had a warrant. This wouldn't have happened. And so what black people see so clearly is white people saying without using the words, I don't care. Yeah. I don't care that this happened. Yeah. And then it becomes not just one individual tragic violent act perpetrated by one police officer against one black man. It becomes this place of revelation where black people see not just police forces actions by like not suspending the person or whatever, not just by the police force saying we're okay with this, but the dialogue around the country, then you look and see half the people who live in this nation are absolutely okay with, with what just happened. They're not mad. They think that um, black people should have to shuck and jive and bow and step off the sidewalk and avert their eyes and basically do whatever any individual white police officer or black police officer, what any individual police officer demands that they do in order to show proper respect, to show that they know their place. Um, otherwise they're gonna get killed and I don't care. And the, the connection for me between what happens in these individual police shootings and a lynching, every time a lynching happened, it happened with a story around it so that white people could go to the lynching and they could shake their head and they could say, this is sad. But if he had only complied, if he yeah. had only stepped off the sidewalk, if she had only not mouthed off, if he had only not flirted with her, there was always a story that allowed people to say, this act of violence is regrettable, but necessary, but necessary. because these acts mm -hmm. of violence are what make this community feel afraid and that is how we can control this community which we white people believe is inherently violent and powerful and so we have to use violence to control it and that i mean what is the individual act is horrific but the way that every time after it happens the whole nation has to have a dialogue where half of the country says this can't be and half of the country says it's necessary. Mm -hmm. It's just necessary. And, and that is what I think, I mean, as an outsider, 
looking on. I mean, obviously I'm not a black person, but what I think is just this huge extra burden of trauma, because then as a black person, you're not only worried about like, will the next police officer I see, what might he or, or she do to me, but also just knowing how many of my, my neighbors actually do, are okay with black people being murdered in the streets and they have a story to tell about why that's not a big deal and i don't think that white people realize that every time you say it's tragic but mm -hmm. what black people hear you saying is i don't care mm -hmm. and and i don't i don't think that white like for white people it's a lot of an intellectual exercise because honestly we are not scared that this will happen to us mm -hmm. and if and it could not be more clear in this week that Jacob Blake turns around and walks towards his car. And that's a deadly threat that in the minds of the police officer justifies seven shots in the back. But a white man with a gun walking down the street scene where there has just been a shooting can walk right by a police officer and not be seen as a threat. Yeah. Right. And to be so clear, I am glad that the police officers did not harm Kyle Rittenhouse because I believe that everyone needs to have a trial where they can be found innocent or guilty, right? So I, it's not that I'm saying like, why didn't you shoot Kyle Rittenhouse? I'm just saying white people have to understand, have to imagine for a minute, what would it be like if you knew that every time out in the world, people walking around with guns see you as a threat and will kill you as soon as looking at you just because they feel scared of you and the whole country after it happens will be like i mean yeah kind of yeah i do i mean white people have to understand that that's not that's not right and when we keep having this conversation about like yeah well whatever then what we're really saying is we're fine with white people in this country having one set of rights and freedoms and we are fine with people of color not having those rights. Like that is actually what we think is just, which honestly is what white people have always felt in America, right? Like they've always felt like Jim Crow's not so bad. If you just know your place, you'll be fine. And, and, and slavery's not so bad. If you just serve your master well, you, you will be taken care of. And honestly, it'll be great for you because you won't have to worry about all of it. I mean, like we've always, we white people have always found a way to rationalize and normalize the brutal systemic oppression of people of color. So, I mean, that's what's happening right now. And I, I do honestly think that a, a lot of white people don't, don't understand what their words do, like how much in light of the violent acts, I, you know, it just seems like, well, me having a Facebook dialogue, I'm just talking about it. I'm not harming anyone. And they don't understand the kind of trauma that they're inflicting. Yeah, we've been astonished um, by some people that we considered friends, their thinking on these matters. And um, there's, there's, there's distance now. It's like, oh, we see you um, because we understand that you really don't see us. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm still just in a place of, um, very controlled anger and, um, yeah, I'll probably be in that place for a good while.
Well, and I, but I, I am just, grateful for, um, these NBA players are pretty, yeah. pretty astonishing, pretty amazing. Um, because what, what a contrast you've got, um, uh, <laughs> these players in the playoffs who say, no, we're, we're not going to be your entertainment. We're, we're not going to play uh, until something changes. And to have kind of a split screen of a president and his supporters who traffic in um, racist language, and then um, these very popular uh, players, um, I, I think, I, I think there's, their, their voice is so amplified. And, and at first I was struggling with that because I thought, well, that should be the church on the other side of the split screen. And I thought, mm, no, maybe not because Jesus said that the church is salt and light. And if we are salt, it's, it's not about the salt itself. It's about the food that the salt is on. It's not about the light. It's about what the light shines on. And I think these NBA players are really reflecting um, their, their response is really coming out of the black church. They seem to be very influenced by the black church. And so um, in that way, I'm just really very, in the best sense of the word, proud of them. Uh, but um, yeah, I have been just really astonished by their willingness to um, take a stand. Well, and I also, I just think it's really important um, that the way then not, I mean, obviously not all white people, but many white people move immediately to talk about property damage and to talk about, you know, in, in the light of a killing to say, you know, but we, we can't have riots and we can't have property damage. And I think, you know, the other thing that people just don't realize is when we show the black community over and over again that we don't care if you die we don't care like we absolutely don't care who kills you um if we don't i mean i should say when we show when white the white community shows the black community that we are okay with the with law enforcement officers killing them for no reason and then we say I don't understand why you have to be so extreme and, and damage a building, or I don't understand why there should be looting. I, I don't think that white people understand that if that we are, sh that the white community is showing the black community that we do not care about your lives, but we do care about our stuff. And so then mm -hmm. I think there are people, I mean, understandably so. And, and I think the NBA is a great example of that, of saying like, okay, well, if you don't care that we're dying, then what can we do that you will care about? Because if, the motivation of let's um, change our police departments, defund them, abolish them, like let's create something totally different and new so that black people are not disproportionately killed by the police. And, and if people can't get on board and say, oh yes, because this loss of life is unconscionable to me. And oh yes, because our constitution says that every American citizen should have these same rights of life, liberty, and a pursuit of happiness. And every American citizen should be innocent until proven guilty and should have the right to due process. And we see that the systems we have right now deprive many people, but especially many black people of that. So let's create a new structure so that everyone can have these rights that our founding documents say that everyone should have. But if half of the country can't get on board with that just because they don't value the lives that are being lost, then I do think that that half of the country has to understand like, okay, then people are saying, what do you care about? Because if 
you know, I, my family's from Louisville and I was talking to my sister and she was saying like, I don't know if downtown Louisville will ever be the same again. Like after Breonna Taylor's killing, I don't know if anyone will ever feel, I mean, this is her language. If anyone will ever feel safe going downtown to a restaurant or walking around or whatever. And I'm saying like, I mean, I am okay with that because what I think we need is a new structure that saves lives. And if, and if the loss of life isn't enough to get some people on board, maybe people will honestly internally say, I don't care who gets killed. But what I do care about is I don't want my city to be burned down. So resentfully, reluctantly, I'm going to get part of a new process, not because I value these lives that are being lost, but because I value being able to go into my city. And so to be clear, it's not that I am saying that I, I mean, whatever, like I, I'm not saying that. I think it's okay that people are destroying property. I'm saying I understand why people are saying we are dying over here. Mm -hmm. How can we get you to see that something has to change? Because if people will just, you know, because for a long time, you know, people have been protesting peacefully and nothing is changing. And what is happening now is a boiling point where everybody has to say, even if you don't care about the people who are being killed, you can't have your normal life anymore and this system that will just randomly kill people at any moment. And I also think that white people don't understand that if this, if these kinds of acts of violence are what being are being caught on camera when people know that they're wearing body cameras, when people know that there are bystanders standing around with cell phones and they're still doing these acts of violence, then what's terrifying is what happens to people when they are inside a prison system and they have absolutely no power at all and there are no cameras and the people in those systems know that they can do whatever they want to the people on the inside. Like if this is what we're seeing in public in the light of day, then, then I cannot even imagine how much brutality is happening behind closed doors because the spirit that sees a black man walking away as a threat deserving of seven gunshots in the back, that same spirit exists in people on the inside where there's no accountability at all. It's, it's terrifying. So, yeah. Yeah, I was reading an article the other day about something called, um, and I may have mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, um, called the, the Quiet Exodus. It's about um, black Christians who are in majority white Christian spaces, churches, schools, et cetera. And uh, this season has been a revelation to many because on the one hand, white evangelicals very clearly and passionately express their um, um, support for um, saving unborn lives and passionately recruit African-American Christians for that cause. Then when black Christians started dying or black people started dying by police brutality, 
they went to these same institutions saying, hey, this is about life. This is about our lives. This is a pro-life we, issue. This is a pro-life issue. We want you. We need you to say something, do something. One church in Texas, um, it's a it's a it's a mega church, and so there there's several. You know, when you've got several thousand members, you may have a couple hundred black members, and uh, in this mega church, the black members went to the pastor and other um, elder leadership and said, hey, we need you to affirm Black Lives Matter. We need you to affirm that this police brutality is wrong. We need you to say something about racism right now. And what they got was an endorsement for the current president. And so what, what this article is about is um, Black Christians quietly leaving these spaces because they yeah. see what you're, you're saying is that white people, not all, many, way too many, at the end of the day, simply do not value Black lives. I was watching uh, a PBS uh, program, um, I think maybe a week or two ago, and it was about rescuing animals. And I watched this white person run into a burning building to save a dog. And then when they brought the dog out, the people, white, were crying, rejoicing, because they saved a dog. And I thought to myself, yep, white people in America care more about dogs than they do us. And uh, I just had to turn off the program. And I think, I, I think what white people don't understand is we've been taught for so long that, that what matters is what we feel. And so mm -hmm. in, in a moment like this, when we see a black per another black person be killed by the police, what, what we can say is like, well, I'm not happy about that. I'm sad about that. And what we can say is like, also, I have no hate in my heart. Like I don't have any mm -hmm. hate in my heart towards anybody, right? And so why isn't that enough? I'm not racist because I'm sad this happened and I don't have hate in my heart. And I believe intellectually that white people and black people have the same inherent sacred worth. So I'm not racist. I'm not happy about what happened. So why isn't that enough for quote you people? And what I think, and, and I think that the work of um, um, Ibram Kendi is so helpful. He, his How to Be an Anti-Racist book is so, lays this out so clearly and it's a really accessible, easy read. But what he helps white people understand is look, there are systems in this country, and the police system is just one of them, but the healthcare system, the educational system, the housing system, the mm. voting disenfranchised system, there are systems that are destroying and killing and stealing from black people in this country. And if you as a white person are just going like, well, I don't hate black people, and I'm sorry that this has happened, 
but also whatever is happening with the system isn't, I mean, like I, it, I didn't set it up. And so I'm not responsible for it. Like it just is what it is. Like you might not have hate in your heart, but you don't have love in your heart either. Mm -hmm. Right. Because if which, you're is not willing, <laughs> right. which is an action, right? It's not primarily say, like, a feeling. Saying, it's an action. Right. And if you're saying like, I'm sorry that the police officers are killing you, but I'm not willing to let my elected officials know that I'm not okay with it. I'm not willing to go to the city council and say, I, I want these kinds of reforms. I'm not willing. I'm basically like, I'm neutral towards the system. Like, I'm sorry it has bad outcomes for you, but it, it really is it's working well for me. So I'm not, it's not my problem. Then you are supporting the system mm -hmm. and you might not have a feeling in your heart, but if your inaction is leading to people living in this country under siege or as second-class citizens, then that is supporting racist systems. And so that means, and so I really appreciate Ibram Kendi sort of saying, look, for our whole lives, white people have been taught that as long as you're not racist, you're on the good guy side. But if you're not racist, but you're also not disrupting racism, mm -hmm. then you are empowering it. And, and again, I think, and I've said this a lot lately, so maybe even on this podcast, like, if back in the day, if you knew that a lynching was happening in town and you thought it was bad, but you just stayed home and felt sad about it, then the person still got lynched and nobody yeah. goes back in time and goes like, well, thank you for feeling sad about this. No, like if someone <laughs> is dying and you love them, then you run into the burning building. You try and stop it. And you can do that in whatever way is right for you, right? So it doesn't mean that you have to go and march. It doesn't mean that you have to, and as Christians, it does not mean that we engage in acts of violence or acts of hatred or right. or even acts that would break the the commandments. Like we mm -hmm. don't, we don't steal things. We don't, I mean, that's not what we do, but we do disrupt these systems. Like we do, if we say that, I mean, it's just like in James, if you're, if your brother is hungry and you say, go and be well fed. I mean, if you look at a black person and say, be safe out there. And that's all you say. My reading of the scripture tells me that that isn't love because, and like it or not, deny it or not. If white people in this country said, we don't want the system anymore, that the system would change. So like, that is just the truth. Yes. What comes to my mind is the uh, scripture um, from Joshua, choose this day whom you will serve. And it is, um, it's, it's a call to choose a side, right? There is, mm -hmm. I think a, a lot of people, a lot of white people kind of want to be neutral, right? right. I, I'm, I'm not for this. I, I'm not for this brutality. I'm not for lynching, but I don't. I don't want to actively disrupt it. So I want to get this neutral, stay in this neutral place, but you have to choose uh, whom you will serve. And if you're going to serve the Lord, it does mean actively dismantling, actively disrupting this. And I think white people say, sometimes white Christians say like, well, I don't agree with this stance about Black Lives Matter. I don't say, I mean, the, fine. you don't have to, you, you don't have to That's join That's a convenient excuse. I mean, you do it your own way then. Mm -hmm. If you want to disrupt the system in a way that you feel more accurately glorifies God, fantastic. Like that is wonderful. So, but the point is nobody owns the work. You go in and do the work in your own space. The reality is most people associate Black Lives Matter movement with this work because the Black Lives Matter movement has come into the space of doing the work. And many 
like you were saying about the Texas church, many congregations and bodies of, of Christ have been invited by members of their community, part of the work, and have said, actually, no, that's too, we don't want to do that. So then there's a, there's a space. And, and I mean, thank goodness that people are coming to say, this isn't right. And, and there's just no nuance in the body of Christ about justice. So if you think this is just, then you should support it. But if you know that it's not just, then we have to be, we have to be disrupting that system in a way that glorifies God. We have, we have to be. So anyway, um, and on that note, <laughs> I am, I'm, I'm going to a protest. I got to go <laughs> done for today. Um, because, um, yeah, because we've talked a lot and, and you're not preaching this week. Um, I'm not preaching because my friend Kate is giving me, has given me a wonderful gift this week. She is um, preaching uh, for me this week. And so in our virtual worship service, uh, after our worship leader plays some songs, uh, the face our wonderful congregation will see is that of Kate Murphy, and they will hear a powerful word from Psalm 23, and I am grateful. Well, yeah, I just, I mean, this is such a low-key way to do a friend a favor, because literally, I just sent you the sermon that I made for my church, and I mean, so I'm like, sure, I just, I labored and labored doing my own work, glad you It is still a gift, it's still a gift. I said to you, like, I've been wrestling with all this stuff this week and having Psalm 23 be the text. Like, I've really wrestled with how to speak to this moment in the context of this piece of scripture. And and so I just at one point gave up and was like, I'm just going to be really honest with the congregation about how much I've wrestled with it. Um, and so it is, it's a, it's a pretty raw and vulnerable preaching moment for me. And so when you reached out, I was like, well, you can have it. <laughs> I just, I'm not sure you want it. And I keep sending you the manuscript and being like, just read it. Just make sure that you are okay. But, um, but it's, you know, whatever it's, it's real. So, so we'll see. And I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad to do it. So, um, yeah. So thanks for listening to us this week. And, um, if you want to learn more about Derrida Church, D-E-R-I-T-A, Derrida Church, Derrida Presbyterian Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, Yolanda's Church. You should Google it and it will pop you over to their website and you can listen to messages from December of 2019. Some from 2020. We're just not fully caught up yet. We're getting there. Um, but you can listen to Yolanda's messages and you should at the Podbean <laughs> website. Um, just look for the Derrida Church space and also, you should check out um, Derrida Church's YouTube channel where you see um, Yolando give his messages, um, and it's great. And if you want to find out more about The Grove, you should go to um, thegrovecharlotte.org. Um, you could sign up for our weekly e-newsletter, which this week was made by me in the absence of Rachel. <laughs> and um, you can also um, listen for Grove messages on iTunes. Um, and the Grove Church Podcast. Is there anything else I want to say? Not really. Oh, you could worship with us um, on Facebook at 10 a.m. Um, and that's it. Thanks for listening to us. We will talk to you next week. Bye.